You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, remain standing and turn with me to the Gospel of John in chapter 8. I'm going to pick up in verse 21. So he said again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world that I have, that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying, the, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and, and we thank you for your word. Lord, and we pray that you would just bless it as we come together and we focus our attention on um, these questions and uh, the way Jesus answers them. I, I pray that, that you would work mightily through the proclamation of your word, guide us to truth, exalt the Son. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working and, and active in this room to draw us to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I titled this message originally uh, two questions in a clarification. And then I got thinking uh, maybe it would be more appropriate to title it three questions and some clarification because really when we go back uh, a couple verses, uh, there's another question that's really uh, poignant, and I, I think that we should uh, look at that as well. So that's where you get the, the three questions if you're if you're curious about that. But we'll we'll talk about those in a minute. Now I've I've brought up uh, progressive Christianity several times from the the pulpit, and I, I do this because I, I think it is a, a tremendous threat. I, I think that it's crucial because I, I think that we're not immune from being sucked into the allure of its teaching. So the question is, is, is what is it? We need to, to remind ourselves. Let me give you uh, that answer according to a guy by the name of Michael Kruger. Uh, Michael Kruger is not a, a progressive Christian. Uh, he says this, it's a version of Christianity that sells itself as a valid option for Christians that on the surface looks a lot like the Christian worldview and may seem in the eyes of many people to be more acceptable, more likable, 
and really more palatable version of the Christian faith. I think that we need to pay attention to what Kruger is saying here. The, the reason why this is so dangerous is that it is a, a horrendous false teaching that denies the, the fundamentals of the faith and it's packaged as a viable option for Christians to uh, hold on to. It's packaged as something that people will like and gravitate toward it. It makes Christian, Christianity seem uh, more likable, more acceptable among the masses. Now, Kruger, he is the professor of, of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary. He gives three basic characteristics of progressive Christianity. Let me give those to you really quick. And he's just touching on the surface in hopes that some will recognize it. I'll give you all three, but I'm just concerned mostly about the first for now. First, he says, it has a low view of Christ. Progressive Christianity has a low view of Christ, and Kruger gets this at his point when he says this. They believe that Jesus isn't so much the divine Son of God, but rather is just a moral example for us to follow. Jesus is more of a big brother that sets a pattern that we walk in his footsteps. And of course, that's, that's partly true. Of course, we do want to and we long to follow in Jesus' example, but for progressive Christians, and I think this is his point, is they make that the main thing. Second, he says, that progressive Christianity is focused on moralism and not salvation. What is interesting here is that we see this so much today that in what we wouldn't even consider progressive Christianity, and that is that uh, there are so many uh, that are caught up in moralism. And I would suggest that this is one area in which we see the progressive influence in many popular evangelical churches. For instance, it is not out of line to go to a church these days to have them read the Bible, to have them preach from it, but actually what you are hearing is something that even a, a Buddhist or a Muslim would agree with. And when that happens, there is a problem because the concern is moralism at the expense of salvation. Christian churches preach Christ. The third, and that is that progressive Christianity downplays fallenness downplays our, our fallenness, that the problem with humanity is that they are spiritually dead. Not what progressive Christianity in, uh, emphasizes is that we're not living in, in unity. Progressive Christians see people as basically good. They stray away from the word sin, and when they do use the word sin, it's greatly nuanced. So, the question then in my mind is, what do, what do progressive Christians say? I've, I've told you what one warning of it says, but what do, do they say? According to uh, progressivechristianity.com, there are eight characteristics of progressive Christianity. I won't give them all to you, but I just want to highlight a couple. The first is that uh, following the, the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and an experience of the sacred capital S, sacred, and the oneness and unity of all life. Two, following the teachings of Jesus is but one way to experience the sacredness and oneness of all life. Let me give you one more, and that is 
that these believe, that they seek to find grace in seeking understanding and believe that there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. And I think this is interesting, isn't it? There's a name for this today. It's called deconstruction. And and there are some debate on whether this is healthy or can be healthy or not. I don't want to get into all of that. But the overall premise here is that questioning one's faith is a positive thing. Now, of course, nobody thinks that Christianity is should be based on blind obedience or that people shouldn't think for themselves or that we should blindly follow and never ask questions. That's not what's happening here. For the the progressive Christian, the value is in questioning itself. And the questioning of one's faith isn't for the purpose of finding truth. It isn't a quest for truth, but it's to overturn what one has traditionally believed. That's what's meant here for the, the, the progressive. Well, they would say historical Christianity has always believed A and B are wrong. But let's just think about that. Let's, let's rethink it. This is the whole premise behind uh, Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian, or Rob Bell's books that deal with uh, scripture or hell. He's saying, okay, this is what the, the church has traditionally believed on these things. This is what we believed for thousands of years. Let's just rethink this and go a different way. It's questioning what Christians have always believed to be true. But the thing is, is Christians have always believed these things to be true because the scriptures are clear. I I, I just bring this up at the start because we see a, a line of questions from the religious elite here in our text and they remind me of how a progressive see questioning or the purpose of questioning when it comes to spiritual matters. There, there are some questions that just are not helpful and their aim isn't to find truth or the absolute as the progressives put it, but it's about resisting truth. It's about taking a key doctrine of the Christian faith, like the the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and say, well, the way we've historically understood that just doesn't sound right to our ears. Would a good God really send his son to die? Wouldn't that be like cosmic child abuse? The questions here aren't aimed at getting at truth. They're aimed at resisting it. It's quite a, a masquerade. It's a facade of seeking truth but that isn't the goal when it comes to progressive Christianity the goal is to remake the Christian faith more into into something more palatable and likable than it really is it isn't about truth I hope you you understand what I'm getting at there's a, a way of questioning things that is not concerned with truth Not long ago, our our vice president was speaking. She uh, made a a big deal about how uh, abortion is compatible with the Christian faith. That was her her point. And and the reason she tried to, to make this case on behalf of Christians is because the Christian faith clearly puts abortion in the category of murder. And she was saying, in effect, well, did God really say that? She was saying, we need to rethink this issue as Christians. And her point, and she knows this, I think, or she should know it, but she was, she was not concerned with the truth. She was concerned with politics. 
There's a way of questioning things that make people sound pious, that make people sound right, but it's not, it's not concerned with truth. I, I want you to, to quickly look at these three questions that we see in the, the text and I'll just talk about them briefly, and then we'll get to, to Jesus' uh, how he answers them, how he deals with them. If, if you go back and, and back up a little bit, um, we were, the, uh, for, back up to verse 19. That's where um, we see the, the first one. If, if you remember, the context here is that these, are, these religious leaders are, are pushing back on Jesus because he didn't have enough witnesses, Right? He comes, he proclaims himself to be the light of the world, and they said, wait a minute, you're testifying by yourself. You can't do this. We talked about this last time. They, they were trying to dismiss him on a, a technicality, we said. Jesus said that he could, he could testify, that because he had superior knowledge that none of the others had. He said that there was none else that was qualified to be this testimony because he alone was impartial. He wasn't tainted by sin. And then finally, he said in verse 18 that the Father bears witness about him. In other words, the scriptures are centered on Jesus. They bear witness about him. We've seen this over and over. But here Jesus is saying, actually, there are two witnesses about me. You've been studying it your entire life and still you do not know these words from God are about me. So the religious leaders come back after they tried to dismiss him on a technicality. They come back with three questions. And like I said, their, their goal here isn't to get to truth. In 19, they ask, where is your father? Why would they ask this question? First, it was an utter rejection of what Jesus just said. He said that the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said, who's your Father? In other words, they're saying, we reject what you say. You're saying that your Father is the God of all. It's Yahweh. We reject that. But you see, this question wasn't for the purpose of getting to truth. It was a statement that pointed to the events around and surrounding the birth of Jesus. It was meant to, to be an incredible insult and point out to others that his mom became pregnant before the, the marriage was consummated. It was pointing out that Joseph was not Jesus' dad. Actually, we're going to see this tactic again shortly. If you drop down to verse 41... Jesus is using some strong language there. Again, he tells them that they are doing the works of their father. Notice that Jesus is making it clear who his father is. The one and only true God of all. But Jesus is telling them that their father in whom they follow isn't the same. They have a different father. And he's going to tell them who that is in just a few four short verses. And he's going to say it's the devil. And then, but, but these protests here, and he says, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So again, these are pointing to the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And, and here they're not suggesting, but they're specifically saying that Jesus was born as a product of sexual immorality. It was not true. Who is your father? Credible insult. The second question in verse 22, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And we need to understand about uh, something here about Jewish belief in, in suicide. In Jewish belief, uh, those, who, those who would kill themselves went to the lowest part of Hades. Right? If, 
not just, they, they didn't just go to Hades, they went to the lowest part. So when Jesus said, where I go, you cannot come, these religious leaders were right in understanding that Jesus is speaking about his death, but these were saying that, that since they were going to heaven, they, they had to, then Jesus must be going to hell, right? They're trying to flip the script on Jesus a little bit. And not only is Jesus going to hell, but he's going to the lowest part of hell for that matter. Again, this is an incredible insult. They're, they're, flipping, they're flipping it around. Obviously, Jesus means he's going to heaven. They're going to hell. They're flipping it around, and they're trying to say, actually, what's he going to kill himself? Because he's going to go to the lowest parts of hell. It's snarky. I mean, it's disingenuous. The, the, the obvious meaning of Jesus' words were that Jesus is going to be with his Father in heaven. They would not. And whether they believed these things or not, the obvious meanings of Jesus' words was clear, and they understood it. The question was, was not good. It was, it, they, they tried to turn it around and say that Jesus, was go, that Jesus was the one going to hell, and they would not. The third question in verse 25 asks, Who are you? Who are you? It's important to understand that Jesus had just told them that unless they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the true light of the world, that they would die in their sin. Jesus then turns, or they, then these turn to Jesus and say, who are you? They don't really want to know who he is. He's already told them who he was. They, they didn't want to know. What they were doing by this question is calling him a nobody. Who are you? Who are you to say these things? You're nobody. You're, you're inconsequential. I mean, this wasn't nice at all. Who are you to say these things? You're nobody. Again, these questions, they're, they're not meant at, at getting to the truth at all. It's obvious, but let's just spend some time here and look how Jesus responds to their questions. Where is your father? We read that, that Jesus answered this by saying, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father. And then in verse 20, we learn that he was speaking these things in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because uh, he had his time hasn't come yet. Then Jesus goes on and he says again, I am going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going. You cannot come. Of course, this last statement spawns the second question that the religious leaders ask of Jesus. But it's important for us to see a couple things here. And that is, uh, first, that Jesus is telling him that they don't know the Father. I mean, just think about the incredible, the, the radical nature of this. These religious elite, these people that dedicated their lives to studying the Scripture, to pointing other people to the Father, how to worship, Jesus is saying, you don't know him. But then Jesus takes it a step further and says that if you want to know him, if you want to know the Father, you must know Jesus, and you know neither. I mean, it's a pretty strong statement. There's no wonder why John adds that statement in verse 20, that he wasn't arrested, for his time hadn't come yet. For Jesus to tell these religious leaders that they don't even know the God that they claim to know, the God that, that these heralded as teachers of the law, 
so that those who, who wanted to know the Father, where would they come to? Where would they go? I want to know God. They would come to these experts. These were the, the intermediaries to God, so to speak. And Jesus says, wait a minute, I am the intermediary. If you want to know God, you come to, to me, not them, me. And Jesus says that these do not know the Father. The only way to know the Father was through the Son. Of course, this isn't most of us have John 14, 6 memorized, where Jesus explicitly say, says that he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. I've been thinking about this statement in verse 21 for some time. In a, in a message a, a while back, I, I mentioned that we would get to this, it, that we would mention that, that Jesus would say this. That in one of uh, those verses that, that Jesus, it's just one of those verses that, that hangs in your memory. You can almost put yourself in this situation and here Jesus is looking at these men and he tells them that these have no interest in him at all. And he says, that there will be a day in which they seek him, but they will not find him, and that they will die in their sin. What is Jesus getting at here? Is, he, is, it, is it purely prophetic? And Jesus is saying, he's just fore foretelling that these are going to die in disbelief? Or is there more? I think that there's more here. And just think about this. Jesus presents himself as the light of the world. Whoever believes on him will have eternal life. And these obviously have rejected him. They've rejected him now. They've rejected him before and they continue to do so. There's no desire to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. They're using every tactic in their arsenal to dismiss him. They're resorting to, to, to uh, technicalities. They're resorting to, to, to questions that are mocking him. So now Jesus is saying that since they have rejected God... God is going to reject them. We see something similar to this in the book of Romans, right in the first chapter. When we read that first chapter, we see a phrase repeated. God gave them over, or God gave them up. Let me just read it. It's a lengthy section in Romans 1, but I think it's important. I'm going to start in, in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. There's the first one. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impunity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. Second one. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see first to acknowledge God, God, and here's the third one, gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what, not, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So in that text, we learn that God gave people over because they refused to glorify God as God. So he gave them over to uncleanness. Then we are told that because people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator, God gave them over to vile affections, sexual perversion. Then we see that God gave them over to something far worse, and that is a reprobate mind. That is, he abandoned them or gave them over to their old debased or corrupt thinking. Their own damnable way of doing things is another way to say it. Understanding that the, the huge lists of sins there flow from that reprobate mind that God gave them over to. I use the word reprobate. The word literally means unapproved. It means rejected. Think of a, a something going through an assembly line and it's tested for a quality control and some idols are, uh, items are unapproved to go on. They are rejected. This is the idea. This is the kind of mind that they have, a mind that is, that is not clean. It, it doesn't pass the, the test before God. And God has given them over to this. It's important, though, that we don't misunderstand something here. God did not make them reprobate. He did not make their mind a reprobate mind. He let them go here. He gave them over. He gave them up. This is what we call common grace. Grace that God extends to everyone. And boy, if there was not common grace, it would be unimaginable how evil the world would be. God uh, constrains evil. Things are not as bad as it could be. God curbs it as common grace. The fact that there is some semblance of justice and order in the world today is the grace of God. And if God were just to relinquish his grip on our world, if he would let it go a little bit, it would be far worse. And this is what is happening here. God is, is saying, in essence, I, I'm just relinquishing my grip. I'm, I'm giving you over to your own debased mind. I'm letting it go. You want to go this way? You keep rejecting me? Then I'm opening my hand, and you're going to see what your mind is, is capable of. It's a glimpse of how bad things can be, how bad our, our minds are, are naturally. We're, we're corrupt at our, our core. And here we see it. So when Jesus is telling these that they will die in their sin, he is saying that if they continue to reject Jesus, he will give them over. He will reject them. Look at Jesus' response to the second question. 
Will he kill himself? Remember Jesus said here that where he is going, they will not come. This follows with Jesus' response to the first question. They will die in their sin. And here Jesus is telling them that not only will they die in their sin, but they will experience the true due penalty for their sin. They will spend eternity in a devil's hell. But here's the the point I want to make in the short time I have remaining, and that is that Jesus' invitation here is not going to last forever. Jesus says it plainly in verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There is time to believe. That time is now, but that offer will not last forever. If you reject God and make it your practice, then he may very well give you over to a reprobate mind. But the offer is there today. It's here. Believe. Trust in him. Or what? Jesus says it plainly, you will die in your sins. Sometimes Jesus is painted as a a mild and meek character that doesn't want to offend anyone. But here, Jesus is the true archetype of meekness. Meekness is power under control. The the picture of meekness is a a battle horse that is extremely uh, strong. But a battle horse that has been meeked, it's got a a, a bit in its mouth and a rider on it. It still has all of that power, all of that. It could break fences. It could do all of those things. But it's under the control of the one who holds the reins. It's power under control. And for the Christian, we are to be meek. Our bridle is the gospel. The gospel is what controls us, compels us. Jesus was not weak I want you to note uh, that here. But but notice that there will be a day in which everyone will meet God. One evangelist preached a sermon on this text, and he said this, The greatest reason why you should prepare to meet your God is that you must meet your God. Think about that. The greatest reason to prepare to meet God is that one day you will. I want you to notice something else here, and that is that Jesus said that these cannot come to where he is going, for he is not from here. Again, Jesus will go to his Father's side, but these will not. What Jesus is speaking of here is eternal separation from God, and the fact that you you can't miss in this text is that sin separates us from God. Sin puts a gulf between God and humanity, and that gulf is only remedied in Christ Jesus. You see, the, the greatest need of any person of any person in the whole world, no matter where they live, no matter what they're going through, is to have their sin dealt with in Christ Jesus. For if it isn't dealt with, then the future for them is certain. It's eternal separation from God. We've talked about common grace a moment ago. That glimpse we get when this world, when God opens the door, so to speak, when he pulls back the veil and allows us to catch a glimpse of the, the evilness that is in a person's heart? What if God's hand was totally removed? 
as we close here, I want you to think about that. What separation from God means. And Jesus says it here. Where I am going, you cannot come. There's such a gulf there. And you will die in your sin. I want you to think about that last question. Who are you? They meant it to be a a mocking question. The religious leaders meant it. Who are you? You're a nobody. But it is a valid question. It's one that everybody needs to answer. It's part of preparing to meet God. The world's idea of preparing to meet God, though, is to live a a good life, to do good things. But Jesus says, if you want to prepare to meet the Father, you must first know the Son. You must answer that question. Who is he? Who is the Son? And Jesus says here, this is what I've been telling you from the start. Invitation is out here. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. It's what Jesus said about himself. And the question is, is will you believe it? In verse 27, we learn that the religious leaders didn't understand. So Jesus says to them in verse 28, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Isn't it interesting that... Jesus is having this back and forth with these religious leaders as he's teaching in the temple court. The religious leaders are just dismissing him over and over and over. They're mocking him. They're insulting him. There's this great crowd of people who are gathering together, who are listening to all of this. Finally, they say, you're a nobody. But he doesn't even have the right to claim that he is the Messiah because he doesn't have enough witnesses. After all of this, we read that as all of this is happening, as he was saying these things, many of the people that were standing there listening to all of this believed in him. After some exceedingly harsh words from the lips of Jesus, after Jesus didn't really hold anything back with the religious leaders, he told them that they didn't know the Father, that if they rejected Jesus, it was like rejecting the Father, the Father would therefore reject them. That if they continued in their path, that God would reject them forever. All the while, Jesus is pointing to the remedy. The remedy is himself, to believe on Jesus to trust in him. And we learn here that, that many of those who were listening to this caught just that. They not only caught that the religious leaders were wrong, that they were hypocrites, that they were jerks. I mean, they didn't, it wasn't all that it was about. It was Jesus pointing toward himself. Jesus was using this, this dialogue, this back and forth to point to, to who he was. And it goes back to that statement that started this all. I am the light of the world. I am the the remedy for the, the darkness that exists in the world. 
the, the separation that now exists between God and humanity. This is the way to eternal life. You want to know the Father? You come to me. You want to prepare to meet the Father? You don't go to them. They are blind guides. You come to me. You come to Jesus. In other words, they must truly answer that question. Who is Jesus? What the religious leaders meant to use as a question of mockery actually served as an avenue for belief. Because when people sincerely ask that question and realize that what Jesus was saying was true, that what he claimed was true, that one sin could be dealt with once and for all through Jesus Christ, of course, these didn't understand all the details. They didn't, they didn't get it all. They could have grasped in that last statement because it said when Jesus is lifted up, he's referring to his death, they, they could have said, man, John the Baptist said, he's the, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he going to die for our sin? I mean, I, I don't know what exactly they grasped in all of this, but they believed. It's quite a, it's quite a statement. As he's pointing to the disbelief and the ultimate rejection of the religious elite, there are people here that buy into it. They believe in Jesus. I love that. And as we take and we turn our attention to the Lord's table, those of us, we've asked that question. Who is he? Who is he? And we've answered that question. This is Jesus. This is, this is the Christ. This is the, the one that God sent to take on flesh, to live a, a perfect life, the way that we couldn't live it, to obey in, in every regard, and then die the death that we deserve to die, to pay the price so that those who would believe and trust in him would have eternal life, that they would one day Live with him in heaven. So when Jesus says, where I am going, we know that it is because our faith and trust is in him that we will be with him and we will see him as he is. We believe. And now it's that opportunity for us to, to come back and to ask that question again, who is he? Who is he? Who is he to me right now, today? He's the one whose flesh was broken for me. He's the one that, that came and, and lived for me. It was perfect. He was the one who was lifted up, who was put on a cross and his blood was shed for me. Right? This, is, this is an opportunity. This table is for us to, to come back and say, who is Jesus to me right now? What sins do I have in my life that Jesus dealt with? What areas in my life do I need to, to turn from? Because Jesus dealt with them on the cross. When we start asking that question, who is Jesus? What is he, who is he to me today? We start thinking of all of the things in our life for which Jesus died because we're not perfect people. We're not good. 
We fall short continually. But we don't get to heaven by our merit. We don't get to heaven by what we do. We get to heaven by what he has done. This is why we come to the table. It's a constant reminder. It's not in our work. It's in what he has done. And we praise him. We're grateful for what he has done. And this is, this is invigorating. This, this changes things in our life. We look at what he has done and we're so grateful. And not only do we have an obligation to live a holy life, but we long to live a holy life because of what he has done for us. And I pray that that would be a reality. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.